0: Thanks for listening to this audio resource from Sovereign Hope Church. And just to update you, thanks in large part to many of you. uh, We've been able to purchase a new home in central Missoula. And there's a lot of work ahead of us when it comes to making another warehouse our church home. And you can continue to contribute to remodel and renovation funds at achurchbuilding.com. But we just want to express to you how grateful we are for your support. And we hope that this resource you're about to listen to will be a blessing for you as well. But let's pray before we dive into God's word. Lord Jesus, I thank you for your gracious kindness to us. I thank you for the opportunity to gather as part of your church, as we do with so many, many churches across the globe every Sunday morning that reminds us uh, of how big your gospel is and yet how you've called us to live out those doctrinal truths together, to reflect your glory and your name to all of the cities in which your church gathers in a way that we as individually are incomplete. So Lord, we thank you. We ask that you bless our time in your word this morning. We pray this in your name, amen. So I heard a story this week of a men's discipleship group where one man opened up and asked for help. His wife was gonna be out of town for the weekend and he told his brothers that he was preparing to face temptation. So they thought initially of lust and pornography or maybe even of alcohol and he said I know as soon as she leaves I'm going to order a large pizza and sit on my couch with a tub of ice cream and the men responded how you just did (laughs) (laughs) laughing and the confessor pushed in a little bit more and he said no I'm serious God takes gluttony very seriously and I need help in this moment or maybe you've heard perhaps from if you're Welcome back, GCF students, if you're in a secular environment. Another context of gluttony proposed as a critique of Christianity. And sometimes they say, why is the church so concerned about Christian sexual sexual ethics or against homosexual marriage when the Bible speaks three times more often about gluttony than it does about same-sex relationships? Is it hypocritical? to care about what the Bible says about sexuality if you don't also care about what the Bible says about Cinnabon. How should Christians view gluttony? Is it to be laughed at? Is it to be elevated above other things which scripture says is of utmost importance? Like doctrine, sexual ethics, extortion. And this is where we need God's word to bring us wisdom And that's the privilege of spending so much time in the book of Proverbs as we've been working through this book. And what we see in God's word on a whole is there is a big difference between one night of weakness in the bedroom and one night of weakness at the buffet, just as there's a difference between someone who murders a man with his hands and someone who, biblically speaking, murders someone with hostility in their heart. Yet, even if we acknowledge a right sense of biblical priorities, don't we often view our appetites, our cravings, our glut for the world's desires as at best benign, docile, and at worst embarrassing? But God's word brings us balance, conviction, and correction to areas where we are both unaware and underdeveloped. And that's what we're going to look at today. Because what we're going to see this morning in the book of Proverbs is this, is that behind our relationship to food are the realities of our hearts. Behind our relationships to food are the realities of our hearts. And we're going to kind of take a tour of the book of Proverbs today. Stephen read uh, partly where we're going to start, which is Proverbs 25, as that's right about where we are. We were in Proverbs 24 last week. We're we'll see it in three ways. First, we're going to see gluttonous indulgence, which sounds like an ice cream. And then we're going to see gluttonous ignorance, which sounds like everyone who opposes you on Facebook. And then, lastly, we're going to see gluttons redeemed, which is where the gospel meets our want. We'll see a couple points of application there as well in closing. But with that said, uh, let's look at our first collection of verses from Proverbs 25. And then we'll dive in. So we're going to begin by looking at Proverbs 25, verse 16, which says this. If you have found honey, eat only enough for you, lest you have your fill of it and vomit it. Skip ahead to verse 27. It is not good to eat much honey, nor is it glorious to seek one's own glory. A man without self-control is like a city broken into and left without Walls. So if you have your Bibles open in front of you, uh, you could probably, you don't even have to flip your page. I don't, in my Bible, to look back at Proverbs 24, verse 14, where God commends Solomon, commends the Lord's word to us as honey. Where honey is stated in this positive sense that we ought to become like our mouths to start watering for this kind of honey. And yet, not too far removed from that, now we are being warned of too much honey that is honey in a gluttonous, indulgent, and unrestrained way. And unfortunately, he's not warning us about people who desire too much God's word. I wish we had to be curbed for that, but it is impossible. I've never once in my ministry said, you read God's word too much. Stop it, you glutton. But instead, this shows our hearts and that we are prone to find the sign of honey and we become consumed with it. We want it. And we know this indulgence, don't we? The indulgence for what is sweet and wonderful. Social media takes well-meaning parents and turns them into evil scientists. And uh, my wife once did this. And uh, she saw on Facebook or Instagram or something, it's called the Cupcake Challenge. It's this is really loving experiment where you bake a cupcake for your three-year-old, stick it in front of them, leave the room and film it to see what they do. And so that's what we did. We baked a cupcake, set it in front of poor, unsuspecting Ellie, set up the phone unknowingly and said, don't eat it, we're gonna go away. Now the Bible speaks a lot of not provoking your child to anger and you could talk to Sarah about that later but for the sake of illustration, we all know what happened. You see this angst. You see that the sweetness of honey calls us to partake of it, to want it, to lick it, to smell it, to touch it, to do anything to it. And why do we do this to our kids? (laughs) Because we know it's true for us. We know that the temptation of Proverbs 25, 16 to eat too much honey is real in our lives. That the call of honey will call us to throw aside self-control and go full Winnie the Pooh on whatever honey jar is in front of us. But remember, if you turn back one page, what Solomon warned us of in Proverbs 23, when you sit down to eat with a ruler, observe carefully what is before you and put a knife to your throat if you're given to appetite. Solomon is calling us repeatedly, actually, in the book of Proverbs to exercise restraint in the face of things which taste good. To put yourself at distance from excess and ravid consumption. There have been eras in history that have shown that this has been a common problem. Here we are thousands of years ago, and Solomon's talking about it. And then when we get into the Roman era, we see that they make these wonderful halls where you go and puke after you're full so you can return back to the feast. So you can have endless consumption. You get full, great, go puke, and then come back. And we might think that we are now a civilized society, and we have healthier relationships with food, but this isn't true at all. How many of us have eaten to a point of having pains in your stomach? We loosen a belt strap. We wear our stretchy pants to the buffet. Go online and look at how many clinical diagnoses there are for eating disorders in our world. In America, people who eat too much, people who don't eat, People who eat much and then vomit. People who don't eat enough. We might think we have a healthy relationship with food, but that seems to be a reality that doesn't match up to what we actually see in our world. Don't we see that we need God's wisdom when it comes to our relationships with our food? So how do we understand the biblical realities behind something that plagued Solomon's culture, plagued New Testament culture, has plagued all the culture in between and is still in our lives today. We've seen kind of the triumvirate of fool that Solomon speaks of. He's spoken of the adulterer and the drunkard, the adulterer being someone who gives way to sexual temptation. He speaks of the drunkard, the one who's always looking for his next intoxicating experience. And the glutton exists apart from, but also underneath, the drunkard. They're often spoken of in tandem by Solomon. And from a Christian perspective, it's really easy to look at the adulterer, and to look at the drunkard, and understand the deep idols of the heart that are behind those things. To commit sexual sin, whether it's on a screen or with a person, involves intimate, vulnerable, relational affection that has an impact on an actual image bearer that is in front of you. We get the heart realities there. Drunkenness inebriates us. It disassociates us from our own mind, our own soul. It distorts reality and even our vision. We understand the effect that has on our hearts. And for the sake of clarity, there has been far more damage caused to other people, to the Lord's church, and to the witness of the gospel in in drunkenness and in adultery than gluttony has ever done. But... To look at that and to respond by saying gluttony isn't dangerous, even if it's just less damaging, is foolish. We can look and see on the scope of sins that we're not necessarily talking about token sins here. If one of you who's married, who's a member, who sleeps with someone else, you might be liable to church discipline. If one of you goes and eats too much popcorn at the movie theater, we enter into that conversation a little differently. But are we too quick to just laugh off the idea of gluttony? Are we not sober enough to actually think about the reality that lay behind our heart? It's almost as if those who are inside the church are prone to recognize that we need a release. That when anxiety, when pain, when comfort lurk at our door, we know we can't drift off and have a steamy affair. We know we shouldn't go and have a drunken binge. And so what do we do? We go look at Ben and Jerry as a safe friend. We go to the honey and we eat it until we're sick. But this is where Solomon wants us to see our indulgences as a window into our hearts. Look at what he says in verses 27 and 28 of Proverbs 25. It is not good to eat much honey, nor is it glorious to seek one's own glory. A man without self control is like a city broken into and left without walls. Unrestrained indulgence in the food of your choosing signals what? A lack of self control. And oddly and interestingly enough, it's actually attached in Proverbs 25, 27 to a seeking of your own glory, to a seeking of your own state. Your kabod is the Hebrew word, to your own comfort, to your own radiance, to your own self, which isn't that exactly what Satan prayed on with Eve in the Garden of Eden. And here we see that gluttony actually isn't ultimately attached to how much, but to self-control at the most basic level. It wasn't that Eve would have been fine with 10 apples and she ate the 11th. It was that Satan tempted her with the promise of her own glory. To hear, if you have this, then you'll be like God. And she couldn't resist. And it's this lack of self-control which tragically leaves you in this almost humorous, if it weren't true, situation that Solomon paints of a city exposed in the midst of war to be pillaged by your own heart without any defense because you cannot say no to whoever stomps into your heart that day and says, Mine. How concerned should you be about your desire for gluttony? In Proverbs 30, we meet it's a Proverbs written by a man named Agar. So we've drifted away from Solomon. There's a couple other voices that will join us as we continue on. And he begins to share four people who make the earth tremble. He begins to give a list of those who should cause us, if there were to be villains in a superhero movie, to shake. One of those four in Proverbs 30 verse 22 is a fool when he is filled with food. In the New Testament. Peter calls the churches in exile to exercise self-control in both 1 and 2 Peter. Paul calls for self-control 15 times in his writing. Five times to his young protege, Timothy, he says, equip the church in Ephesus, Timothy, to be a church of self-control. Love this in your church. And then he turns to Titus, who is also undergoing church planning, where Ephesus was an older, mature church. They needed self-control. Here's Crete, where Titus is at. Five more times, he says, Titus, let your church be a church of self-control. Ephesus needed it. Crete needed it. In his letter to Corinth, both first and second, he says, have self-control. In his letter to Galatia, he says, have self-control. We are a people whose heart does not want to be controlled by anything except for its desire. It is right, it is biblical to say that the Bible holds things like sexuality and drunkenness of a high, high significance, but it's actually behind our relationship to something as simple as our food that we get a temperature gauge of our heart, that we begin to see the building blocks on which we view those other more significant issues. And full disclosure here, I'm a glutton. I am one who struggle in this area. There are certain foods Uh, that I cannot bring into my house at all. Now, that's a point of contention in our marriage because those are foods that Sarah, having more self-control, loves to bring into the house. And she'll often say, where'd all the Pringles go? And I say, I don't know. I don't know where the Pringles went. (laughs) And I can tell you, and it sounds silly, but as I've gotten older and as I've been in Proverbs preparing for this, you want to know one of the realms, one of the arenas that I often have the greatest spiritual battle in Red Robin. I love, like we often use the phrase like I'd kill for, like probably I would actually kill for French fries. I love it. And to go to a place where they are bottomless French fries is to set me in an unfenced yard of danger. (laughs) And we laugh because we know it, don't we? And yet when I sit there and when that waitress comes And says, Do you want another round of fries? God has convicted me that this is not merely a matter of even fitness or aesthetics. That I want that food because I want my glory. It makes me feel glorious, it makes me feel comfortable. It makes me feel like I am a God worthy of being satisfied by everything I can get my hands on. And that's the danger of gluttony. It's not primarily an overeating issue. We saw that in the Garden of Eden. In fact, it's not even primarily a food issue. The root of gluttony in Hebrew actually has nothing to do with food. It's kind of like this, this uh, mechanical term of like to shake out, to squander. It's to just get rid of things. It means to be thoughtless, to be one susceptible to a bribe. It means to be one easily bought. We can be gluttonous in our control over food. We can be gluttonous in our calorie counting and presenting a portrait of fitness to a watching world. There's not a whole lot of difference between a man in his meat sweats and you binge watching something on Netflix on a Thursday night. There is a very fine line between someone who is enslaved to counting calories that is very similar to someone who has constant Amazon boxes showing up at their house because they don't exercise self-control with their online shopping carts. And this is why we need God's wisdom. Because sex in God's context is good. Alcohol in God's context is good. Food in God's context is good. Clothes in God's context are very good. And he has Paul Tripp who said that, I think it's Paul Tripp, that we often take good things and make them into God things. A gluttonous lack of self-control causes us to view these pleasures of the world as if we are God that we get to tell them when and where they will satisfy us. We get to write the rules of how we use those tools. That didn't mean to rhyme. But instead, God is saying, I am God. I am the one who has the authority to say how these will satisfy you and how you ought to use them for your own good. And this is what leads us into our second point this morning. And this is gluttonous ignorance. So I'm gonna read from two chapters in Proverbs and what I want you to see in these two texts are the similarities they have when they speak of being a glutton or the friend of a glutton. First, we're just gonna turn back a page from Proverbs 25 to Proverbs verse 23. We'll read verses 19 through 21. Hear, my son, and be wise and direct your hearts in the way. Be not among the drunkards or among the gluttonous eaters of meat For the drunkard and the glutton will come to poverty, and slumber will clothe them with rags. Then we can turn to Proverbs chapter 28, verse 7. The one who keeps the law is a son with understanding, but a companion of gluttons shames his father. So, did you see the connections, the similarities between these two passages? Solomon wants to, one, point to what we're ignorant of, and two, warn of what we might pursue in light of what we're ignorant of. And that is he wants to show that the glutton is ignorant of an experience of God's faithfulness in his word. And then secondly, that the the glutton is instead prone to experience the excess of foolishness in the midst of his friends, in the midst of his companions. And the first thing we saw in those texts is that the glutton is ignorant of God's wisdom. And this should be at this point, uh, like God, Solomon's gut punch is going deeper and deeper into our belly at this point. We've connected gluttony to a lack of self-control. And it's easy in a sense to justify that because we all wrestle with self-control, right? There's kind of these three token things that I think we're prone to. As I was looking at this, we're prone to overeat, overspend, and overwatch. We say, Yeah, I don't have much self control, right? How many of us get flustered when it takes Netflix a whole five seconds to put on the next show? <laughs> but what Solomon is actually saying here is what's contrasted with gluttony is not merely discipline, though that's true. What's contrasted with gluttony, if we look at those two passages, is the path of wisdom, the path of understanding, the word of the Lord. In other words, if we are so uncontrolled that we cannot say no to the compulsive desires of food, of fitness, of comfort, or of pleasure, then what you're probably showing is that you're too uncontrolled to say yes to the rest of God's wisdom in Scripture. That that's the same heart. There's no kitchen tiler and pulpit Tyler. There's just Tyler. If we are constantly thoughtless, which is the root reality behind that word gluttony, if we are constantly thoughtless towards our world, how much more thoughtless will we ultimately prove to be of God and of his wisdom? And this is where food is a litmus test for our own hearts if you don't trust that God will be faithful to you and saying no to another bowl of ice cream, do you really believe that God will be faithful to you when the stakes are raised and you're saying no to lust or to alcohol or to something, uh, or not just to alcohol, excuse me, to drunkenness or to something bigger and bigger and bigger? To put it positively though, if we find ourselves to be happy, satisfied, content when we consume things in moderation, when we do as Solomon says, to eat only enough for us, Are we content to see that that God is actually for our good? That his words are not there to strip from us satisfaction, but to give us satisfaction. That it's not there to harm us, but instead to bless us. And doesn't that then give us confidence when we face those higher issues of either costly obedience of saying no to something or costly obedience of saying yes to something? You see, this is the beauty of discipleship, of following Jesus, Where does following Jesus begin in your Christian walk? It begins at the dinner table the day you were saved. Isn't that wonderful? That when you sit down to eat, you sit down as a distinct person, as a disciple of Jesus, who says that even when you reach that point that Solomon talks of eating only enough for yourself, that you are not merely responding to a biological reality. You are responding to a theological truth that it is God who gives us calories. It is God who allows our calories to be, uh, what's the scientific word for this? Uh, Metabolized? Is that right? Metabolized in our bodies to respond. And we can say, God is sufficient for this. I have everything that I need. This is the son, the son who eats like this. This is the son who knows the way of wisdom. This is the son who makes his father proud. And you see, God is after more than obedience in this area. He's actually after your joy. Because did you notice what was at the end of the road for the drunkard? Poverty, clothed in rags, destruction, He wants to spare us from being a city raided and left without any protection when we hear the menu come back around, seconds are offered, the bottomless fries are flaunted in your face. He wants you to feel secure and joyful in something that never runs out. He wants us to be deeply satisfied even as we eat and as we drink. And what's interesting is even though we very rarely talk about this in the church, notice how many times the issue of food comes up in God's story. Do you remember way back in Exodus when the Israelites are wandering from the desert and they're hungry and they cry out to God? You know what God says? Deal with it. You're spiritual people. Don't worry about physical things. No, that's not what he says. He knows that we are body and soul. Why? Because he created us. And so what does he do? He gives them manna. And that manna does not taste like bland, utilitarian MREs ready to eat. That manna tastes like what? Honey. He made them something good. And what does God say to them? Take only enough for yourself and for your family for that day. The exact thing Solomon is saying. But what do the people of Israel do? They're just like, yeah, okay. And they keep stuff in their bags and they take it back to their house because they don't trust that God would provide for them. And what happens is the next morning as God is raining fresh honey baked manna in mercy on his people, the manna that was left over in houses begins to rot becomes filled with maggots and stinks to high heaven. But if we're honest, and I would invite you to be, is it not sometimes easier to put our hope in the maggot-filled manna which is on our counter than in the empty table of faith? Behind our relationship to food is ultimately our relationship to a God who we either believe or disbelieve that he is faithful to care for us. If we don't believe God to be a companion in times of want, then what will we do? Solomon warns that we'll turn to our gluttonous friends. This is the second thing he points out. He says that to be ignorant of God's faithfulness to us is to then keep gluttony or to keep company with gluttons who invite us to share with what they have to trust that they have something that God himself is withholding from you. And all of us are probably similar with a cultural proverb Paul quotes in 1 Corinthians where he says, bad company ruins good morals. Aware of this, most of us try not to fraternize with terrible people. But here Solomon wants you to examine your friends' relationships to self-control and gluttony. Do your friends exercise self-control in their life? Or are they prone to justify your excess? Whether it's in justifying like, "I sure, I buy a lot, but not as much as that person. I eat a lot, but not as much as that person. Because don't we often feel that there's safety in numbers when it comes to these things? That if we're just better than the next lowest, then we're the best. Or... We genuinely have the best of all desires. But when all of our friends are participating in something, we begin to participate as well. We want someone to be with us and tell us that everything is going to be okay, that though you are as bare as a city without walls, here, here is the peace that finally gives you what you want. But you'll never find that in the wisdom of the world. In fact, if you just look at where in the world do you ever see someone satisfied? You see the promise of satisfaction everywhere, but that preys on the reality of dissatisfaction. And this is why it's astounding to consider how the gospel comes to us. Jesus, we looked at this a while ago, in Luke chapter seven, speaks of how he is perceived by the world. And look at what he says, beginning in Luke seven, verse 33. Speaks first of John the Baptist. For John the Baptist has come eating no bread and drinking no wine, and you say he has a demon. The Son of Man, that's Jesus referring to himself, has come eating and drinking, and you say to him, a glutton, a drunkard, a friend of tax collectors and of sinners. So Jesus came and he associated with the glutton. Jesus violated, in one sense, Solomon's general counsel to not go near the drunkards. But here's the beauty of King Jesus. Jesus re-pieces together all of our brokenness. Where we can go into that midst in all of our best intentions and say, I'm going to stay strong. Jesus, as the true Son of God, fully man and fully God, went into the midst of that painful place and never sinned there's this theological realm where we talk about Jesus' perfect obedience. And that is that Jesus was able to die for your sins, not simply because he was God, but because he was also the perfect human. He never disobeyed God. But do you realize what that includes? Like, let theology lead us to worship. That's what good theology does. Jesus never overate Jesus never had an unhealthy relationship with food, even though his stomach was hungry. One of the first things Jesus did after he rose from the dead is he ate with his disciples. Jesus had all of the stressors we have on our physical body because he was physically here. And yet he was sinless. Here is the king who came to the gluttons not to fill his own flesh, but to fill us miserable gluttons with the same joy that satisfied him. Jesus came and related to us perfectly so that he might offer us who have only lack the fullness of satisfaction that comes from being one back to God. And this is the hope today for those of us who struggle in these areas. And this is our last point, gluttons redeemed. Look at how Proverbs presents a sort of redemption. Back with our boy Agur, in Proverbs chapter 30, verses 8 and 9, where he says this Remove far from me falsehood and lying. Give me neither poverty nor riches. Fill me with the food that is needful for me, lest I be full and deny you and say, Who is the Lord? Or lest I be poor and steal and profane the name of my God. So, what lies at the heart of our challenge towards gluttony? Contentment. Contentment, which says, Give me neither poverty nor riches, give me the perfect amount. And here we see the window into our heart that what is gluttony tied to there? Lest I be full and deny and say, Who is the Lord? How many of us treat food as the Lord? And we say, dang, if Cheetos taste this good, this man might not need a God. But here is the heart of someone who relies on the Lord to satisfy. He says, even in my moderate portion, Jesus is fully satisfying. So how do we get here? How do we find this contentment? Jesus played off of this desire, looking back to the Israelites in the desert. He was the one who came to help our insatiable appetites. In John 6, Jesus had just fed 5,000 people with some fish and loaves, and Jesus attracted a crowd because he just fed 5,000 people with some fish and some loaves. He was seen as the one who finally brought the solution to our gluttony. Here is the cosmic vending machine that gives us all the food we've ever wanted forever. Here are the walls that will finally be be built up around our insatiable appetites. Here for the unrestrained glutton is the fountain of fish and chips, which would never end. And Jesus knew that's why people followed him. But look at what he says in John chapter six and speaking to them, beginning in verse 26. Jesus answered them, truly, truly, I say to you, you are seeking me not because you saw signs, but because you ate your fill of the loaves. Do not work for the food that perishes, but for the food that endures to eternal life which the son of man will give to you. For on him, God the father has set his seal. Then they said to him, what must we do to be doing the works of God? Jesus answered them, this is the work of God that you believe in him whom he sent. Jesus, the true wise man, provides all of the satisfaction and glory we turn to the world's hunger for. But how does he provide it? Not in worldly excess, not in austere stoicism of driving a wedge between the body and the spirit, but instead by salvation in faith. For those who believe in Jesus, they would be filled finally, ultimately, and eternally by God himself. You see, I think part of the reason we're fearful to talk about gluttony is part because we know we all wrestle with it. And because of that, we fear that when we begin to talk about gluttony in our midst that we just find another gospel of legalism. Another thing that says try hard, and if you try hard enough, if you're elite enough, if you're special enough, if you're disciplined enough, then you'll finally find peace. Man, if we find another good news robed in legalism, we've just found another talking head of the world. But this is not the world's gospel This is not something which shames the fat and entraps fit people of having to keep up with this pinnacle of fitness because our body is a temple. This is where we refine this peace, peace we see in 1 Corinthians 8, 8, where Paul says this, food will not commend us to God. We are no worse off if we do not eat and no better off if we do. Our food, in our excess or in our control, does not commend us to God. Not in how strict you observe calorie counts as an attempt to earn salvation, or calorie counts to satisfy us, or food to consume us. We are commended to God by faith in Jesus Christ. And yet to be commended to God, to finally find the glory which satisfies, means that we now turn to these vices of the world as one who is finally and fully filled. Who has peace whose walls are tall. I've said this before that we've seen in Proverbs there are three primary idols of our hearts that manifest themselves all over the place and that is food, alcohol and sex. And those are also the three token signs of the gospel in God's word. Christ is the loving husband who takes the church as his bride in holy intimacy. Jesus' cup is the cup of true celebration where death has finally been defeated and we can celebrate. And Jesus' table, his body broken for us, the bread of life, is where we are finally and fully satisfied. You see, at every corner of your want stands the risen Savior promising to find satisfaction in himself instead of in the world. So in closing, how do we apply this text on gluttony? First, Believe in Jesus. Sounds simple, but you will never be able to say no to the desires of your flesh until you say yes to Jesus. But this means we need to understand how big the gospel is. You see, gluttony, if you if any of you were raised in the Catholic Church or have seen it represented in pop culture, it's one of those seven sacred sins, seven vices. And that came from an era of the church where they they kind of synthesized these things because it came to a point where uh, they had seen how the world on a whole was pursuing physical things. And they said, well, we are a spiritual people, so we don't need physical things. And so things that fed our our physical body, things that were of physical enjoyment and comfort were deemed to be not Christian. But this is where we need to have a full picture of the gospel. We are both body and soul. We belong together. We are not... Uh, Some people have said, we are a spirit, we have a body. No, we are body and spirit. And that's what we will be in heaven for all eternity. God cares about our body, which means the redemption which saves us is a redemption that should manifest itself in how we view our person, how we understand our body. That's how big God's love is for you. That's how much Jesus cares about you. That he considers, what David says, our frame. And he knows our weakness. And so in following Jesus, believing in Jesus means that we acknowledge not only the spiritual realities of our lives, but the spiritual realities which have physical manifestations in our lives. And help recover a theology of our bodies and of our consumption. There are two postures I want to hold up in application. And that is discipline and doxology. Doxology. Paul encourages the church in Corinth with the promise of discipline in the same way an athlete disciplines his body. Says, as an athlete is training to complete, complete a race, train your bodies. So it's not as good as spiritual discipline, but he's not saying, get rid of it. Just as athletes, because of discipline, are able to dig deep and fire those muscles to accomplish something great, having discipline in our lives gives us muscles to follow Jesus with. One thing that helps with this is the last thing any of us want to hear, and that's fasting. I've done it. It's not super fun, but you know what it is? It's super effective. It has done very little things for my physical health. It has done marvelous things for my spiritual health, which then impacts how I view my food. When you fast, what you're ultimately saying is that I really believe that God has provided for me what, we, what I need to make it today. That's not to say we don't look to physical means. Even Jesus, after he fasted for 40 days, again began to eat food. And God cared for him in that. And don't start big. All of us are like, well, Jesus fasted for 40 days. I could probably do that too. Don't start there, okay? A good way to start is to start after supper tonight. and Don't eat anything until supper on Monday night. But here's what you do. As you don't waste your hunger. When you become hungry, you pray and you say, Lord, you are the God who provides for me. You are the one who sustains and satisfies. Help me in my weakness to rely on you. And what that process does is it gets us, our little grubby hands holding on to those steak fries at Red Robin, begin to loosen a little. It is not ultimate. God is my Lord and I can submit to him. But the solution to gluttony is not simply a discipline which treats food as an enemy. Instead, the solution to gluttony is also to see food as a way of worship. That's their second point of application is that we include food as part of our doxology. That comes from the Greek word, which means to worship. We touched on this a little bit ago when God spoke of his honey and his wisdom he expects that we know what honey tastes like and that it tastes good. This means that as when we eat things that taste delicious, we refuse to become enslaved to that food, but instead we enslave that food to the Lord, which means this, we should be the best eaters of food. Christians should be the best makers of food and the best eaters of food. We should start making scenes at all the restaurants Because we know when we eat that wonderful Buck Buck sandwich from Wally and Bucks that God has so designed that fried delicious food to react on my taste bud, to trigger dopamine in my stomach, to make me feel full and to be satisfied. And why has he done that? So that we might be more satisfied in him. One thing I do every morning is I go through my, my hipster way of making my coffee that you guys make fun of me for and I sit down to read God's word and I use food to help me in my doxology. The first thing I do is I drink that deliciously sweet, aromatic with a hint of blueberry and orange peel coffee and I, I feel it go down my throat and it warms me and I say, this word I'm about to read is better. It goes deeper, it warms more hotly, and it satisfies more intimately. Today, when you go to lunch, taste food to the glory of God. And that prevents us and protects us from all of this because our sinful hearts and the devil wants us to taste that food and run to it like Adam and Eve did, thinking that in that food is the glory we've always wanted. But God says, use that food for the glory that has come to you in Jesus Christ. Let it point you to me where we are reminded that it is the Lord who satisfies us in this food. How much more does he satisfy us in Jesus Christ? If it is this exciting to bring your friends to the table of your favorite restaurant, how much more exciting is it to bring your friends to the table of the Lord? So when it comes to our relationship with this food, let us lead with our relationship to God through Jesus Christ. Let us be disciplined. Let us be worshipful, but most importantly, let us be distinct, for we taste as people beloved by God himself. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, as we sit here waiting to go to lunch today, we ask that you open the window to our hearts so that we might see our desires, that we might encounter our self-control where we lack it, where we misuse it for our own glory and what you've called us to do in submission to you. Lord, I pray that we become distinct people. If we want to be a distinct church, it has wonderful manifestations in how we share the gospel and how we love our spouses and how we work in our careers. But Lord, it also has an immense reality on how we sit at the lunch table. Lord, when we talk about gospel change for all of life, we mean it. Make us a people wise with your word. We pray this in your name. Amen.